I'm ready when you are. National Governors Association. Set up, well, the NDA is part of that too. Yeah. But uh, anyway, there's a tripartite alliance that's going to work together then to create a new set of science standards, quote unquote, national, uh, at the national level. And then those in turn will go to respective states, and states will have to decide whether they're going to adopt them at their particular state level. So we're still probably at least a year away from that, 82. Um, but one of the problems, of course, in America, for those of you who lived through the earlier set of national standards that were done in very matter areas, is that nobody paid any attention to them in almost any state. Uh, and I say that having worked on them and having worked in two state education departments. Uh, that's just the nature of the reason. This time around, there's at least a chance that they might get, in fact, adopted at the state level, although if you know anything about K-12 education, you know that we have 15,000 incubators of individual innovation at the district level as well, and uh, what gets tested is what gets it may not be taught, even if it's in, in fact, the syllabus or the standards and so forth, and even if it is taught and is tested, what's tested may not actually be what children actually learn anyway, but that's not that. All right? <laughs> so that's a... Just an update in terms of how that goes. So this session uh, with John, John Staver comes to us from Purdue University. He has a PhD uh, from Indiana University. He's a chemist, he has a background in chemistry, and a well-known science educator uh, in the United States, and probably outside the United States, infamous in some areas. Yeah, <laughs> Kansas. <laughs> and uh, John and I got to know each other when he was at Kansas State University, and I was vice president for education at the Hoffman Foundation. Thanks, I'm happy to be here. Um, title of the talk is what it is, uh, three fairly controversial concepts, skepticism, 
an alternative truth theory and an alternative epistemology and looking at uh, those as grounds for perhaps resolving some of this controversy between uh, or discord or however you wish to describe it between science and religion. Uh, I really got into this. Dennis was talking about I was uh, back in the late, I was a senior level faculty member um, tenured at the Kansas State University which is the land grant institution of the state of Kansas and was invited to, to be a part of a of a, a 20, I think about a 26, 27 member team to uh, write the science standards for the State Board of Education in the late 1990s and at the first meeting I got elected one of the two co-chairs and the rest is history. It was not a real pleasant experience uh, and um, it made some publicity, shall we say. <clears throat> and as actually that experience has kind of uh, directed me into uh, the, the specific issue, although I've been uh, uh, been a growing advocate of constructivism as an epistemology for uh, longer than this. Let's get to it. Uh, I've never done this before, but this is an appropriate place. And uh, the summary of this, this is actually sort of a scratching the surface of a very lengthy article that's in uh, this issue of cultural studies and science education. It's uh, issue one of this year. And the, the prayer is actually in there, in the article, and um, this is it. It says, from the cowardice that dares not face new truth and from the laziness that is contented with half-truth and from the arrogance that thinks it knows all truth, good Lord, please deliver me. <laughs> and that comes from the United Methodist Hymnal, if you're looking for the source. Uh, published in 1989, it's number 597. It kind of reveals to you my particular expression of Christianity, too. Well, science and scientific inquiry. And Dennis, you're not going to believe this, but check out number three down there on the bottom. Here are three descriptions of science and scientific inquiry. The first two come from very well-known documents. Uh, number one is from Science for All Americans, published uh, by AAAS and written by Jim Rutherford and, and Chick Algren in, in 1990. The next one is from the National Science Education Standards in 1996. And the bottom one is from... Uh, this draft document and uh, basically it says that science isn't only a body of knowledge it's a way of finding that knowledge a way of coming to understand natural systems and the, all through the document they refer to it as the practices of science uh, well let's take a look at religion and theology again religions uh, of course about that relationship that very special relationship between humans and the supernatural world this is a very general broad definition uh, it's also in terms of a, it fits really all religions uh, and theology is really a kind of a science of faith uh, and that's from Karl Rayner uh, it's the conscious and methodological uh, explanation and explication of the divine revelation that's both received and understood uh, within the context of faith. And of course, uh, I don't really know a better definition of faith than the one that appears in Hebrews, um, being sure of what we hope for and certain of what we don't see. So, science and religion and theology and scientific inquiry, they have very different foci, the natural world and the supernatural world respectively, but they have at least one common element and perhaps more. The one very common one is they both use inquiry. 
Not necessarily in the same way or in the same form, but they, they both use it. Let's take a look at the relationships. Uh, John Hott, who is uh, at an institution here in the district area, has been very uh, vocal and written quite a bit about it. And you can develop conflicting relationships, contrasting ones, uh, something with what he calls contact and confirmation. And that's what those are. We're going to talk mainly about conflict today because uh, that was certainly a problem in the state of Kansas with science standards. And uh, here we are in Kansas. Uh, we've been around the barn, so to speak, several times with this. Uh, the dog that's nearest you, science standards rewrite, is the one that is reflective of this particular issue uh, that we're talking about, the controversy between evolution as... Uh, the, the theoretical framework that brings coherence to the life sciences and uh, certain very, very conservative, even fundamentalist forms of Christianity that, uh, that are in conflict with it. And uh, all the dogs are pretty angry, and uh, they're chasing after this poor kid who is really the, the loser in all of this. And I think that we need to understand in, in lots of these arguments um, the children are the ones who lose. My thesis and purpose is this. I think that the taproot of the, of the dispute lies in the long-standing Western concepts of truth and knowledge. And I'm asserting that, uh, and I would like to explain also, that why I don't see that a conflict need exist between science and religion in general and between um, evolution and religion in particular. Uh, and to fulfill the purpose, and we're going to go through this pretty quickly, uh, I'm going to do several things. I'm going to examine the discord in terms of a traditional postulate of Western thought. I'm going to briefly point out some consequences, very briefly, because that's another talk in and of itself. Uh, I'm going to pose a controversial question and try to provide some scientific evidence that support it, supports it, present an alternative theory of truth, offer an alternative epistemology, and then point out what science and religion uh, would need to set aside and also what they would retain. Well, the traditional postulate is the one of realism. A world that's external to, separate from, and independent of human consciousness exists and is comprehensible. That's a positive realism. It's also the basic, one of the basic fundamental uh, assumptions of science. Truth is correspondence, is the kind of thing where we uh, express knowledge via languages, by, by language and forms of sentences, statements, propositions. Those statements and propositions can be mathematical. And they're true if and only if they correspond to the actual states of affairs, to the facts in reality. And this is from John Searle, who is a fairly well-known philosopher. Uh, truth is correspondence is, in my estimation, the source of the competition, the conflict between these two great ways of knowing, uh, because they're both asking which one gets the facts correct. Each attempts to legitimize its explanations of the external world for some. Well, what if we do something different? What if we take a skeptical pro uh, posture? Now, in my case, skeptical means 
I'm withholding judgment. I'm not denying. I'm withholding judgment. And there's a very big difference there. Because not all constructivists are (laughs) in agreement on this. But I am withholding judgment. Do we need the realist assumption? And what remains in the extreme if we don't use it? And the reason it's in red is that's pretty extreme. Solipsism is a very extreme philosophical position. What I'm not going to do today is to, unless you ask after I've finished the talk, uh, which could take us another hour or two, is to run you through how you might escape from a solipsistic situation. Solipsism, for those of you who may not be familiar with it, I exist, all of you are in my imagination. You look nice, it's fun being around you, but you're just my imagination, you're not real. And it's a very drastic philosophical position, and at least seen in the philosophical community, it's never been disproved necessarily. You can escape it, but it's not been rationally disproved. And so there's a controversial question. Does knowledge represent reality as it exists external to, separate from, and independent of human consciousness? Well, let's look at some evidence from science. There are really two types of consciousness. And this comes from the work of Edelman, uh, who is a Nobel laureate. Uh, there's a primary state of consciousness in which you're mentally, which the being is mentally aware of things in the world and of having mental images of the present. And then there's a higher-order consciousness, which really is conscious of being conscious, which one can recall prior experiences, make intentional, uh, intentional ideas and actions about the future, and, and also exhibit semantic and and linguistic abilities. Well, let's take a look. Based on evolution, first of all, consciousness is an emergent property based on evolution. The human brain's portrayal of experiences um, is a product of this heritable variation and natural selection. And you have to ask the question, okay, our nearest living genetic relatives are chimpanzees and orangutans. Does a chimpanzee or its close, very close neighbor construct knowledge of reality as it is, separate from, external to, and independent of its consciousness? Depends on, I don't know how you'll answer that question. I'd answer it no. We share about 96% of the same genome with them. So what about us? In other words, is, is evolution and the, and the development of, of uh, higher order thinking, consciousness and, high, and sophisticated consciousness, uh, an emergent property to help the organism or the, or the population survive and thrive? Or does it get closer to understanding reality as it is separate from, independent of, and external to one's consciousness? I think the answer is, for me, is no for the animals below us. And then, yeah, if, and if we say yes for us, and I don't, then you have to say, okay, what's, what's special about us from a, an evolutionary point of view? Well, let's take another look at research and vision. There's a couple of vision researchers. 
And we get another um, point about science. Into, intuition can sometimes lead us astray. They say, what's wrong with the seemingly sensible idea that, that we see things because we want to perceive the world as it is and that this is obviously a very beneficial goal and it gets achieved by a lot of neuronal hardware that detects elemental features, the retinal image, and from these reconstructs a representation of the external world according to a set of more or less logical rules that go on in the, in the visual processing circuitry. The answer, they say, is no, for two reasons. One, the sources of any retinal stimulus and therefore the significance for subsequent action are unknowable directly. And secondly, the retinal image also conflates or mixes uh, the arrangement of the underlying objects in space. Now we get to the really strange stuff. What does quantum mechanics say about this? Well, quantum mechanics is extremely controversial, as, and the physicists here can, can, I think, vouch for that, and you understand it better than I do. I just majored in chemistry, and, I'm a, and I started my career teaching high school kids chemistry. Uh, I took some quantum mechanics and have studied it a lot, but it's very controversial because it ultimately connects the very well-defined discipline of physics with the very ill-defined concept of consciousness. There's a quantum enigma uh, that we get to ignore due to a, an interpretation of quantum mechanics that was established in the early part of the 20th century. And that enigma is that the act of observing creates the reality that's observed. And we can ignore that for the most part because the quantum effects are very minimal uh, at our level of where we live. And uh, when I taught freshman chemistry in Chicago the first 10 years I was, I was in, uh, I was a higher education faculty member, used to talk about whether you needed quantum mechanics to see Andre Dawson belt one over the fence in Wrigley Field into one to Waveland Avenue. And my answer was no. You could appreciate it without knowing that the, that the ball had a quantum factor to its motion. It was very insignificant. But when you start talking about electrons and things smaller than that, you very much need quantum mechanics. Well, here's some more. We'll get into the enigma. Is it just not common sense that one object can't be in two distant places at once and surely what happens here is not affected by what happens the same time someplace very far away and doesn't does it not go without saying that there is a real world out there whether or not we look at it well quantum mechanics challenges each one one of those institutions intuition excuse me uh, by having conscious observation actually create the physical reality that's observed and each one is documented by experimental results in favor of quantum mechanics Truth is coherence is the idea that forms of knowledge, those sentences and propositions, are true in relation to each other and thereby form an, an, a, a consistent or coherent harmonious system, that we're not trying to relate it to a reality that's supposedly independent of us, but it's a, they form a clear and coherent system. And, of course, constructivist epistemology 
and this is really a combination of what's known as radical and social constructivism. It doesn't assume that reality exists or is comprehensible. It embraces truth as coherence. Knowledge is actively built up from within by individuals as individuals or communities. Social interactions are central. Uh, the character of cognition and language is functional and adaptive. And the purpose of cognition and language is to achieve coherency. And so as a constructivist, I have to ask for justification that knowledge represents reality, and I advise silence regarding that question. I don't say no, I don't say yes, I'm just withholding judgment, and I do not deny the existence of reality, but in order to explain why, we'd need another half an hour to go through the von Furster's escape from solipsism. And so science with constructivism would need to from a constructivist perspective, would need to do something that's very drastic. And that is set aside the idea of knowing reality as it is. Meaning that independent of our perception, capable of being discovered, lawful of what we know about it, and the corresponding object of, of all that knowledge. It would be coherent and in terms of our experience, but it wouldn't necessarily correspond, or at least we would withhold that. What you get to retain is everything else the nature and the practice and the products that are produced. But you, but you set aside the particular philosophical interpretation. Religion, you set aside the idea that God revealed his truth of the facts of a world that is separate from, external to, and independent of our consciousness. But you retain God's revealed truth in how humans are to conduct our lives. And I'd like to end with this, and I think it's <clears throat> particularly appropriate. John Paul II, I'm a Methodist, not a Catholic, um, but I certainly respected him as, a, as a, one of the, of the truly major and influential leaders of the Catholic Church for 20-some years. This is a quote from uh, that Dennis used. <laughs> Dennis will... No, this is familiar. This is actually from uh, this, the original sources, evidently an address to the Pontifical Academy of Sciences in or the early 1980s. I got an excerpt of it from Voices for Evolution by Matsumura. Basically, it says, Cosmogony itself speaks to us the origin of the universe and its makeup, not in order to provide us with a scientific treatise. The Bible is not a science book. But in order to state that the correct that state the correct relationship of man with God and with the universe. Sacred scripture wishes simply to declare that the world was created by God and in order to teach this truth it expresses itself in the terms of the cosmology in use at the time of the writer. Sacred book likewise wishes to tell men uh, that the world was not created as the seed of the gods as it was taught by other cosmo cosmogenies and cosmologies but was rather created for the service of man and the glory of God. Any other teaching about the origin and makeup of the universe is alien to the intentions of the Bible, which does not wish to teach how heaven was made, but how one goes to heaven. Amen. <clears throat> so, what do you want to know? Now that I can answer it, but ask the questions. <laughs> yeah. 
Pope John Paul, I expect, was a realist. The, the fact that he and I differ philosophically uh, means that we differ philosophically. He uh, was a man of great intellect and great respect. And I also happen to think that, that diversity, uh, certainly in the, in the scientific world, in the biological world, is a major uh, benefit. And I think that diversity is a, is a major benefit uh, really in all forms of inquiry. Uh, if we don't have different opinions and views and argue them out with each other, uh, we basically, I think, push each other to, toward a better understanding of, or and better understandings as a community. Uh, it doesn't matter so much whether, I don't even think about being right or wrong. Um, this is a journey, not a not uh, whether I'm right or I'm wrong. Uh, it's an attempt to, to try to figure things out uh, in some sort of a coherent way. Uh, and whether I think in terms of coherency of the, of the ideas and someone else thinks uh, in terms of uh, whether how well they relate to a reality that exists separate from me or independent of me, uh, that's okay. Um, I actually have a very practical proof that uh, that reality exists. Uh, I don't know whether the philosophers would like it too much. Uh, when I was in Kansas, I used to say, simply walk out onto the either lane of Interstate 70 and turn and face the 18-wheel the Mack truck that's coming at you at about 70 miles an hour. And shut your eyes, please. Yes. Yes, he would. I don't have a problem with saying there is a reality. The th the thing that and here's the here's the here's the uh, the important point from my perspective. The whenever we're doing doctoral research with with doctoral students, one of the things that I'm sure we all demand are separate and independent lines of evidence leading to a conclusion. And we get that within experience, but there are there are some fundamental paradoxes that I didn't, or a fundamental paradox that I didn't share with you. One's called the root paradox, and the problem of the criterion. Basically, we're all working with the same ex experience equipment, and we have one way to connect to a world that exists external to us. What constructivists are asking for is a second way, an independent way, a way that is independent of that experience. And in, at, up to this point in time, we haven't been shown uh, a particular way. In other words, 
what we know is all within experience, but beyond experience, separate from it and independent of it. When I can be shown that and have a chance to grapple with it and wrestle with it, because 25 years ago, I mean, I, when I came out of doctoral school and at Indiana University, I was very much a realist as I had been since I was born and uh, kind of went through a, a change. And, uh, and so that's what we're asking for, is an independent, outside of experience, line of empirical evidence. I'm not, I don't necessarily disagree with, his, with what he's saying, other than it's the philosophical point of view. Yes? Constructivist 